Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Let's hear Ted Cruz. Angry. From Texas. They hate the president and they're demanding of Senate Democrats oppose everything, resist everything, shut everything down. Now. Sir, this sounds pretty familiar. <laughs> didn't you say all this back when this happened to you? Now, I recognize. But he really didn't. That that is a media narrative that you love to tell. It isn't. But it's worth noting in 2013. Green eggs and ham? Sam I am. And that's Sam I am. I do not like that Sam I am. Do you like green eggs and ham? I do not like them, Sam I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. It was weird. In 2013, I voted repeatedly to fund the government. And in 2013, it was Harry Reid and the Democrats who voted no, who voted to shut the government down. But it wasn't. We should not be shutting the government down. I have consistently opposed shutdowns. He doesn't. Or you stood in the way of that. Uh, that, Okay, that's factually incorrect. It's not, though. It's a wonderful media narrative. Both things he just said were lies. This time, Republicans actually stayed united. Well, that part wasn't true, but they would have. On the next Arrested Development. So we cut the best deal that we could. They didn't. But it would have been. And it's more than just a vague promise, Rachel. McConnell said on the floor, and I realize sometimes he's broken his word before. Yet. This is intercepted. I'm Jeremy Scahill coming to you from the offices of The Intercept in New York City, and this is episode 41 of Intercepted. Negotiating with this White House is like negotiating with Jell-O. It's next to impossible. Well, this is another one of those weeks where there is just so much happening and happening so fast that it's extremely difficult to know where to even begin. Following this agreement that was reached in Congress to end the government shutdown, the lives of hundreds of thousands of immigrants hang in the balance after the leader of the Democrats in the Senate, Chuck Schumer, put a tremendous amount of faith in a pretty conniving politician, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. The Republican leader and I have come to an arrangement. We will vote today to reopen the government to continue negotiating a global agreement with the commitment that if an agreement isn't reached by February the 8th, the Senate will immediately proceed to consideration of legislation dealing with DACA. The process will be neutral and fair to all sides. That was Chuck Schumer playing legislative roulette with the lives of extremely vulnerable immigrants in this country. 
Let's hope Schumer actually knows what he's doing. Coming up on the show, we're going to talk to two people from countries President Trump has called shitholes. One of those people could be deported if Donald Trump has his way. And we're going to hear the story of one immigrant rights activist who was snatched off the streets of New York and deported to Haiti last week, and the case of another activist who was arrested and is now facing imminent deportation. We've also learned that Attorney General Jeff Sessions was questioned for several hours last week by investigators working for Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller. Sessions is believed to be the first cabinet member to have been questioned. We also know that Mueller has officially asked President Trump to sit down for an interview with investigators in the very near future. That's something that Trump has flip-flopped on first. He said, yes, of course, I would be happy to do an interview. But more recently, he said he's not likely to do that. We also learned that James Comey has been questioned in that investigation. And while the Russia affair continues to consume much of the airtime on CNN and MSNBC, Over on Fox News, they are obsessed with a memo that they claim is going to blow the lid off of the deep state's plot to undermine Donald Trump and show that they were using NSA capabilities to spy on American citizens, specifically American citizens around Trump. Of course, we've known for quite some time that the NSA has the capability and does spy on American citizens. Ironically, President Trump and the Republicans who control the federal government right now, could release this memo, but the deep state is preventing it or something. Also ironic is that Trump just signed into law the very program that he claims illegally spied on him. And in that case, Trump had a lot of help from leading Democrats like Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff, who assisted Trump and Jeff Sessions in keeping those sweeping surveillance powers including against American citizens, firmly in place. And in a story that my colleague Ryan Grimm broke, inserted into that bill that ended the government shutdown, at least for the time being, was a clause that at this moment would allow Donald Trump or people under him to secretly shift U.S. taxpayer money to fund intelligence programs with no oversight from the intelligence committees. Now, that's a shift from 70 years of U.S. policy dating back to the 1947 National Security Act. After The Intercept broke that story, two lawmakers hit the floor of the Senate in a rushed and ultimately failed bid to take that language out. Here is Mark Warner, the ranking member of the Senate Intelligence Committee. If this exemption is granted, you could potentially have an administration, any administration, go off and take on covert activities, for example, with no ability for our committee, which spends the time and has the oversight, to say time out or to say we actually disagree with that policy. Democratic Senator Mark Warner. To sift through this cornucopia of shit, I'm joined now by The Intercept's D.C. Bureau Chief, Ryan Grimm. Ryan, welcome back to Intercepted. Thanks for having me back. Let's start with this language that will have far-reaching implications for the oversight of U.S. intelligence operations that was quietly inserted into this bill that now President Trump has signed into law. What's wild is it was quietly inserted, but then we reported on it last week and people started paying attention. So you couldn't anymore say that it was quiet. Noise was made. And yet when they brought the bill back to the Senate floor this week, 
the language was still there. And there was an effort at the last minute to change it from the, the chairman and ranking member of the Intelligence Committee that, that failed. But essentially, the language is this. For, for the last 70 years, the, the, the situation between the Intelligence Committees and Congress and the Intelligence Community is that the Intelligence Community can only spend money as authorized by Congress, and it must tell Congress. Now, it's usually done in secret in these classified settings, but at least it has to tell one or two members of the House and the Senate what they're doing with this congressional money. This language says, notwithstanding Section 504 of the National Security Act of 1947, that notwithstanding got the hackles of the Intelligence Committee up. And Richard Burr, the man who worked extremely hard to bury the Senate torture report, the man who has never met an intelligence activity that he disapproved of, went to the Senate floor and publicly warned that, look, if this passes, the intelligence community is going to be able to spend money any way it sees fit without telling Congress for the next three weeks. Uh, We want every tool in our basket that we can to give the American people the assurance that we know exactly what's going on and that we are at least in agreement that they proceed forward, not that they have a free reign only because they've been appropriated a pot of money because an executive request was made. It would be no different under the Obama administration or under the Trump administration. This is something that presumably can be debated and and could be excised from this legislation going forward. In three weeks, you can do a lot. You can move a lot of money in three weeks. You can move a lot of money in five minutes if you if you have a window of five minutes to move it. The Appropriations Committee blamed this entire thing on the Office of Management and Budget, which is part of the White House, said that, no, you know, don't worry, there will still be some oversight by Congress on this, but the Intelligence Committee disagrees on this. And if there's a gray area, then the intelligence community certainly could say, well, our lawyers said to us that we didn't necessarily have to disclose what we're doing to Congress, so we didn't, and we moved X billions of dollars during this three weeks. Once those dollars has have been moved, you know, then they've been moved. The whole purpose of setting up intelligence committees uh, that are permanent in both the House and the Senate is to prevent the CIA or other entities in the U.S. national security apparatus that operate in a clandestine or or covert manner from essentially freelancing U.S. policy without the direct knowledge of one of the three branches of government. And the point of the intelligence committees on their best day is to oversee how the spooks are using the people's money around the world, correct? It would be in some ways to prevent the formation of a deep state, a state that was operating completely distinct from the elected representatives. Now, the way that it operates now is there's there's a small tether between the intelligence community and Congress, but at least there's that tether. And there are some members of Congress who are read in on what the intelligence community is doing. And so theoretically then using that knowledge as they're crafting legislation and, and building in authorizations and appropriations. But if they don't even have that thread of knowledge, then they're operating completely independently of any elected check or balance. Uh, CIA Director Mike Pompeo and others within the Trump administration have been exploring the idea of hiring mercenaries, private 
contractors, including uh, at one point they were looking at proposals from Eric Prince, the founder of Blackwater, and also proposals that were put together by former covert CIA officers to essentially provide Donald Trump and the administration with a way of circumventing their enemies in the deep state. In other words, sort of creating their own privatized intelligence apparatus that would report directly to the White House that also would be outside of the purview of these intelligence committees. So it, this is a, a kind of other way of trying to achieve the the same result. The appropriations committees on both sides of Congress have been saying, you should talk to the Office of Management and Budget if you're interested in this. And I, I actually talked to Senator Burr yesterday afternoon and asked him about this and since he had been vocal on the Senate floor and asked him, you know, any breadcrumbs, where would you suggest that people look if they're trying to figure out this whodunit? And he said, check with OMB. You know, this came directly from OMB. And this is Mick Mulvaney's jurisdiction. He's he's the former Tea Party congressman from South Carolina that now runs both OMB and the CFPB. OMB is the Office of Management and Budget. It's the one that controls all of the purse strings for executive money. They had some reason that they wanted to make this change in the language of the law. And we don't yet know what that reason is, but the fact that there's now a public turf war going on between the appropriations committees and the intelligence committees suggests that we're probably going to find out. When those turf wars become public, the knives come out and people start to talk and reveal what's going on. Now, they're all motivated to win their own turf, so you have to take what they're saying with a grain of salt. But because they're motivated to win their turf back, they tend to spill things that they would otherwise keep hidden. You and and our colleague Lee Fong have a piece this week in The Intercept talking about how all of these candidates who signed up to battle Donald Trump and the Democratic Party is saying, you know, we want women to run and we want, you know, we want people to run in, in places where we haven't been competitive before. Your story, though, describes a big hurdle that many of these candidates have to overcome. And it is the Democratic Party itself. Explain what this story is all about. It's wild. In, in several of these districts, uh, you had very typical DCCC is a Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. It's run essentially by Nancy Pelosi, and they have a profile of a candidate they like. It's a business-friendly, very good fundraiser. A self-funder is fine, somebody who has millions of dollars, and they're just going to stroke a check to themselves. That will then go to Washington consultants, who then will craft television ads and craft a a digital strategy. And they've got cookie-cutter campaigns that they'll tell you, you don't put up position statements because then they'll attack you for whatever you say. And, you know, just run against Republicans, be the opposition to Republicans, and you're going to win. And so several of these candidates who tried this precise thing in 2016 uh, are now running again after underperforming Hillary Clinton. They're running again in 2018, and immediately the key party elements that are, that are informally connected to it jumped in behind them to endorse them. When you have these progressive or populist challengers to them who have roots in the community, have big grassroots support, have small dollar donors that are giving to them at a, at a rapid clip, uh, and uh, here they are going up against party machinery when they're saying, wait a minute, I thought I thought Obama told us to get a clipboard and, and run for something. And the strangest part is that you might have thought that they would say, all right, well, let's let's take a hands-off approach to the primaries this year. And if a House candidate is so good that they win the primary, then great, we'll support them in the general. But if but if they need our help to beat somebody that's funded by 
grassroots donors, $5, $10, $20, $27 donors, then maybe they're not that good anyway. For the most part, they're not doing that. There are some exceptions, and there's definitely change going on within the party, but it's happening very slowly. And so you, ha- you have a ton of races around the country where there's you're seeing the exact same dynamic in 2016 replay itself. And I think a decent number of these kind of insurgent candidates are are going to win the primaries and then may go on to win the general and, and if they do that you know that that sends a real message to the party that that this is a strategy that can work and that they need to get with it or they're just going to get run over this so-called newness memo this memo that Sean Hannity and uh, others on Fox and Drudge etc have like dedicated their lives to right now release the memo Devin Nunes, who is chair of the Intelligence Committee in the House, claims that there is this explosive document that they've pulled together that lays out all the ways in which the Obama administration and officials within the Obama administration were illicitly uh, using tools of the deep state to conduct surveillance on people close to Donald Trump and the Trump campaign. The point being that the Republicans and Fox News are focusing overwhelmingly on this memo, saying it's this smoking gun that's going to reveal the plot to stop President Trump from winning or from taking power. And we need every single American to take a look at this and see what exactly their government did, their law enforcement division did. This is this is that kind of information, and it needs to be public as soon as possible. Well, it sounds to me like a lot of people, Congressman Gates, need to be fired and investigated. This week, you had Gerald Nadler, who's a Democratic congressman from New York. He went in and reviewed this so-called Nunes memo and said that it was filled with misleading assertions, conspiracy theories sort of woven together. And he is now calling on the chairman, Bob Goodlatte, of the Judiciary Committee in the House to share it with the FBI. And our colleague Glenn Greenwald has written a great piece that shows exactly how, if the Republicans really wanted this memo released, they could do it. What what are people saying about this memo, both Republicans and Democrats? The Democratic line from the Adam Schiff world, Democrats who, you know, most aggressively pushing the Russia investigation, their their line on this is that this is a 100% pure distraction from the, the burgeoning Russia investigation, and that this is a uh, deeply cynical effort on the part of Nunes to politicize the FBI. And if you're against the FBI, the evidence is all tainted, and therefore Mueller's investigation uh, should be either disregarded or stopped or tossed out. The line that's coming out of the the Republicans is this pearl-clutching shock at the revelations that are contained in this deeply troubling, horrifying uh, memo that paints a portrait of a Stalinist America. Glenn's point, I think, was the right one. Maybe there is something to it. If so, there's nothing standing between Republicans and releasing this to the public. We've published many articles that show the way in which these surveillance systems are regularly abused by various players in the U.S. national security apparatus, both those with a domestic focus and an international focus. There's an issue that is attached to this release the memo movement that in adv- I mean, I don't think they mean for it to be, but is very relevant to everyone who cares about their privacy and cares about illicit surveillance being done or collection being done on Americans. So it could be that 
much of this is filled with conspiracy theories that Gerald Nadler or Adam Schiff believe it is, but it still may have that nugget of truth in there, which is, huh, does the NSA regularly violate the rights of American citizens? But my God, watching Sean Hannity call for the arrest of uh, an investigation of FBI agents and the firing of like every single FBI official whose name he can find on the Googles. On one hand, it's like, yeah, the FBI is a repressive entity with a horrid history of violating civil liberties and the basic right to life of people. On the other hand, Sean Hannity is not an honest broker in this and is doing this for crass political reasons. Am I wrong in that? That sounds exactly right. It's not the kind of thing that you want to make judgments on just based on the word of Devin Nunes. You can't just take this guy's word for it, especially when he is the one who's sitting on the documents and has every ability to release them publicly. He can do everything in his power to protect sources and methods and names, but he can release enough so that the American people can make a credible judgment for themselves about whether or not what he's describing is, in fact, uh, what's actually what's actually happening. And the longer he doesn't do it, the more suspicious his his charges become. Because this is this is not uh, somebody like Ron Wyden in the past who was trying to hint at uh, you know what what Edward Snowden later revealed. And you can have, you can criticize the way Wyden did it, but he was he had slightly purer motivations probably. But you know if he's not going to put it out, then. I'm not saying he should be completely ignored, but he, we sh- certainly shouldn't panic around it. So you have Adam Schiff on on one side and you have Sean Hannity on the other. I'm sure a lot of Democrats are like, how dare you compare Adam Schiff to, to Sean Hannity? But what I mean is that you have this really ahistorical, irrational celebration of the CIA and the FBI happening now by Democrats who absolutely know that they're promoting a lot of bullshit for their own political reasons. And then you have Sean Hannity, who, you know, sounds like a Black Panther. It's like, you know, down with the (laughs) FBI. And it's like they're both, you know, unbelievably full of shit. But the truth is in there somewhere that these institutions do regularly abuse their authorities and should be investigated, but probably not for the reasons that Sean Hannity wants them to be. And they shouldn't be praised probably for the very reasons that that Adam Schiff thinks that they should be praised. As we wrap up, I want to just get a quick update from you on the various Russia investigations. Uh, We know now that Jeff Sessions became the first member of Trump's cabinet to be interviewed by Robert Mueller. Mueller is pushing forward with his request to uh, talk to Donald Trump. There's a lot of discussion about money laundering uh, allegations and uh, possibly Jared Kushner getting implicated. What's the latest and what's important for people to know right now? The smart money, such as it exists in Washington now, would be on this moving towards obstruction of justice charges or an obstruction of justice investigation and, and money laundering. You look into the, the the Kushner and the Trump empires, my God, they did not want this kind of scrutiny on the, on the way that they've been moving money around the world as uh, basically their their business model, allegedly just just becoming a front for money laundering. That's what the Trump organization has, has been accused of. If Mueller is heading in that direction, then people like Ivanka and Jared uh, are panicked, though it takes them further and further away from the pure sitting down with the Kremlin and colluding in order to win the, win the election. Uh, separate from that, there doesn't seem to be any question that Russia played some game, but whether they can prove that 
Jared Kushner called the shots or Trump knew about it doesn't seem to be as much of the focus. That seems to be moving much towards obst- you know, obstruction of justice for the investigation into that collusion and then the money laundering, which absolutely will involve many Russian entities, many of them connected to the Kremlin because that's how the that's how they're a political economy works. All right, Ryan Grimm, we're going to leave it there. Thank you very much for joining us again on Intercepted. You got it. Ryan Grimm is the Washington, D.C. Bureau Chief for The Intercept. Nearly 180,000 Illegal immigrants with criminal records ordered deported from our country are tonight roaming free to threaten peaceful citizens. The number of new illegal immigrant families who have crossed the border so far this year already exceeds the entire total from 2015. They are being released by the tens of thousands into our communities with no regard for the impact on public safety or resources. Donald Trump promised to go to war against immigrants and the U.S. immigration system. And on this front, Trump has accomplished a considerable amount in his first year in office. Since Trump took power, ICE agents have made nearly 40% more arrests, amounting to about 400 a day. This includes an increase in the arrests of undocumented immigrants with no criminal record. This month, the Trump administration also started targeting workplaces, with federal agents snatching undocumented workers at 7-Eleven convenience stores across the country. Last September, Trump ended the Obama-era policy called DACA, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. That has put nearly 700,000 young immigrants at risk for deportation if Congress fails to come up with a permanent solution by March. DACA recipients, also called DREAMers, are people who were brought to the U.S. as children. At the same time, the Secretary of Homeland Security has indicated that he's terminating the Temporary Protected Status, or TPS, of foreign nationals from El Salvador, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Sudan, some of the countries that Trump reportedly called shitholes in a conversation over a bipartisan immigration deal. But that deal quickly dissolved, and by Friday, we had a government shutdown. Here is Democratic Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal of Washington. And Mr. Speaker, as an immigrant myself, I am tired of being called the worst of the worst. I am tired of hearing Mexicans be called rapists or Africans called vulgarities that I cannot even repeat on this floor. Mr. Speaker, let's end the shutdown now with real solutions for the American people. While DACA and the Dreamers have captured much of the focus of the immigration debate, the Temporary Protected Status, or TPS, of more than 400,000 migrants is also at risk. TPS offers foreign nationals from countries experiencing, quote, civil unrest, violence, or natural disasters, close quote, or other humanitarian crises, deferred deportation, and the ability to legally work, receive Medicaid and other benefits while they remain in the United States. Many people with TPS have been in the U.S. for years, some of them decades building a life here. 
Many of them say that going back to their country of origin is not safe or viable. There are fears that as Democrats flail in their negotiations with the GOP over the spending bill, that these TPS recipients could be used as pawns sacrificed to preserve the security of DACA recipients. What's often missing from the debate over TPS, the policy discussions and the media coverage, is the historical role that the U.S. has played in destabilizing and bringing violence to the very countries that Trump called shitholes. In the case of Haiti, the U.S. has a long, bloody history, from its occupation of Haiti beginning in 1915, to the backing of the deadly Duvalier dictators, to the support for death squads and the overthrow of elected presidents multiple times in Haiti. Not to mention the neoliberal economic policies forced on Haiti by presidents of both parties, including Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Last month, according to the New York Times, Trump said that Haitians, quote, all have AIDS. Earlier this month, the Trump administration announced that it intends to cancel temporary protected status, TPS, for nearly 200,000 Salvadorans. Like Haiti, El Salvador has been the target of murderous U.S. policy. In the 80s, President Ronald Reagan poured financial and military support into the brutal right-wing military junta, sending around $1.5 million a day in military aid alone. Tens of thousands of Salvadorans were killed and hundreds of thousands were displaced. Salvadorans in the U.S. were the first people to receive this TPS, Temporary Protected Status, and that happened in 1990. Congress granted this protection to people fleeing from El Salvador because of the war, a war the U.S. played a crucial role in fueling. In the decades that have passed since, Congress has not developed a long-term solution or created pathways for citizenship for these recipients who have spent their lives working and living and paying taxes in the U.S. Instead, TPS recipients are required to reapply regularly to remain in the U.S. To discuss the real-life impact that the ending of temporary protective status would have on these immigrants, we're joined by two people. Yanira Arias is National Campaigns Manager for Alianza Americas. She is from El Salvador and is currently in the U.S. under the TPS program. And Ninaj Raul is a co-founder and community organizer at Haitian Women for Haitian Refugees, an organization that was founded in 1992 to respond to the human needs of Haitian refugees and immigrants in the U.S. who were fleeing a war that the United States was at the center of. Ninaj, Yanira, welcome to Intercepted. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Ninaj, let's begin with you. First, I want to get your response to Donald Trump's statement that Haiti and all of Africa and El Salvador are shitholes or shithouses, and then the way that it's talked about in the news media in this country. His comment was pretty much consistent with the racism that he's expressed even before he became president, while he was campaigning. I think the way it was portrayed in the media created a, a big distraction. I mean, the real issue, which provoked him to, to make those comments— I believe, is the TPS. Temporary protective status. Temporary protective status. So in the spending bill and the negotiation that's going down now that shut down the government for a couple of days, we're hearing more about DACA and to give 800,000 immigrant youth permanent residency, but um, not as much about temporary protective status, which there are people from at least 10 to 12 different countries that are total 400,000 immigrants that are having their temporary protective status terminated and whether we're on final extensions. And it's important for 
that population to also get permanent residency. So it sounds like they were trying to sneak it onto this bill, and that's when he lost it and said Salvadorians. President Trump deriding immigrants from Haiti and some nations in Africa, asking a group of lawmakers, why are we having all these people from shithole countries come here, before suggesting that the U.S. should accept more immigrants from countries like Norway? Because of the specific countries that were named, Salvadorians, Haiti, and, and there are like five African countries that have TPS. That's the problem is that the real issue is not being talked about enough. Yanira Arias, the country of your birth is, in fact, El Salvador. And am I correct that you yourself are here with TPS status right now in the United States? That is correct. I am from El Salvador. And responding to the question that you just raised, the United States has a big responsibility in how in the shape of El Salvador currently. The amount of money that the U.S. government sent to the government of El Salvador back in the 70s and the 80s did a lot of damage to the public infrastructure, to our economy, and over a million people migrated outside of El Salvador because of the war. What you're talking about there is that in the 1980s, the Reagan-Bush administration poured money and weapons and other assistance to prop up a very mercilessly murderous military junta in El Salvador. One of the most known uh, massacres is El Mozoten. We can count 200 in this one village alone. They were mostly women and children systematically murdered in just one day and night in December 1981 in the village of El Mazzotti. The killers belonged to a special battalion of the El Salvador Army, trained by the United States. There is a responsibility of the Reagan administration on that end. What is it that you believe remains to this day that we can tie back to the 1980s and the U.S. role in terms of how the United States created the situation and the conditions in El Salvador that caused this mass migration? The peak of the migration, the, the war started in 79 and 1980. The peak of the migration because of people migrating from predominantly from rural areas was in 1982. Close to 129,000 people left the country to the United States. And between the years of 1985 and 1990, that number increased to 334,000. A lot of the people that migrated in during those years are now currently TPS recipients. And this is people that flew the violence that was financed by the U.S. government. And then we have new ways of migration. And those who question our efforts in Central America should take note of the heartwarming process, progress that President Duarte has made. The people of El Salvador had another free election in March. Economic reforms are continuing and communist guerrillas are losing ground. And none of this would have been possible without the economic assistance and military training and equipment that we provided and yet that assistance passed in the House by a very slim margin. If there's to be peace and democracy in the region, if our neighbors are to be spared the tragedy that comes from every communist dictatorship, we must have the courage to help all our friends in Central America. It doesn't make sense that by financing a war 
you're gonna get you're not gonna have progress out of a country. Uh, giving money for bombs, it doesn't translate in more schools. Giving money for uh, military training, it doesn't translate into a stronger economy. We are one of the slowest economies in the Central America region. And that all that money that we borrow during the years of the war for financing the destruction of our public infrastructure and then lending money to rebuild that that it was destroyed while thousands were fleeing. Right. It's essentially that the United States was paying for the weapons, facilitating the war, and then said, oh, by the way, we'll uh, we'll lend you the money to rebuild the country and we'll slap interest on it and, and, and we'll put you into this perpetual state of debt. That's correct. You know, Nanaj, as I watched the coverage in the aftermath of Donald Trump's statement, I couldn't find any major news organization that provided the political context, the historical context to why Haiti has been in a situation where its people would want to flee or need to flee. Haiti, of course, first black republic in the world, first country uh, in the Western Hemisphere to abolish slavery. What has the U.S. legacy in Haiti been from the beginning? Since 1804, they did not recognize the existence of Haiti as an independent country. And essentially, that was an embargo or a blockade that lasted over 60 years. So that hurt Haiti tremendously. And then United States revisited. In 1915, there was a U.S. occupation with the Marines that lasted 19 years, from 1915 to 1934. They cleaned out the gold reserves of Haiti. They killed many people. They chopped down 75% of the trees, good lumber, and shipped it over here, and the best trees, and didn't replant. And so now when we have these disasters and people wonder why the floods hit Haiti so bad because of the erosion, that was not even 100 years ago. And similarly to what Yanira just, just described, not only on, in El Salvador, Honduras, just throughout Central America, Latin America, the same thing. They supported these regimes in Haiti, poured money into Haiti. They, they, they take the military people and train them in a school, the Americas here in Georgia. It's the same thing that they're doing throughout all these countries. And a lot of these countries that the people have TPS today. The U.S. policy, particularly under Ronald Reagan in the 80s, was to back baby Doc Duvalier in the name of anti-communism. What did it mean in Haiti for the United States to support the Duvaliers? They not just finance, but even down to the clothes and the boots that they were wearing came from the United States, these armies. They just went around and killed people. So it, it resulted in people having to flee persecution, many that fleed by boat um, in the late 70s, early 80s. There was a surge of refugees coming in. When Bill Clinton was the president of the United States, he started warehousing Haitians in horrid conditions at the Guantanamo Bay prison in the occupied portion of Cuba. Explain that moment. Clinton campaigned against Bush when he First became president, he criticized the way Bush was treating the Haitian refugees. But when he came in, he actually did worse. At the time, there was 40,000 um, Haitian refugees that came that were fleeing persecution after the Aristide administration, whose Aristide was the first democratically 
elected president in Haiti was overthrown after seven months of being in office. In a U.S.-backed coup where the United States and George H.W. Bush in were a US coup. supporting murderous death squads like FRAP and, and trying to bolster the same forces that they had supported for so long under the Duvaliers. So, so these people are fleeing this coup and the violent aftermath of it. And how did they end up going to Guantanamo? So they were interdicted by the Coast Guard and taken to Guantanamo. I believe 1983, there was a treaty that was drafted by Rudy Giuliani when he was assistant attorney general, U.S. assistant attorney general, between him and baby doc um, Jean-Claude Duvalier, who was the president of Haiti at the time, saying that if anybody left Haiti by boat within a 12-mile radius, that the U.S. Coast Guard could interdict them and return them to Haiti. Now, this is international waters. The U.S. doesn't own international waters. What happened after the coup in 1991, Aristide supporters were being persecuted about 5,000 people were killed, and so many of them started to flee by boat. And they were being picked up and taken to Guantanamo. I went down there several times, about five times in the early 90s. Initially, I was working with the Justice Department, interpreting, uh, translating um, screenings, what they call credible fear screenings, for, to determine whether or not these were economic or, or political refugees, which in itself is ridiculous because I don't see how they separate the two. The economics is a result of the political. And so hearing the stories, you know, sometimes people were picked up because of their political activity. We, we met people that were fishing that were picked up. They were picking up people like crazy. This was at the, at the end of the Bush administration. Bill Clinton was campaigning. He criticized Bush's a Haitian refugee policy. But when he came in, it was even worse. Under Bush, 11,000 of those 40,000 Haitian refugees came in as political refugees to apply for political asylum. Under Clinton, even after the State Department had documented the human rights abuses and put out warnings for Americans not to travel there and so forth, he closed it down and he created an in-country refugee process, which was People that were in hiding would have to come out of hiding and stand in line across from a police station of the same police that are looking for them to apply for, for a refugee status. From 1993 to 1994, only about 1,110, I believe, refugees were given refugee status compared to the 11,000 that Bush had bought in. Yanira, I wanted to ask, what are the origins of TPS, Temporary Protected Status? Uh, remember, between 1985 and 1990, 334,000 Salvadorians migrated to the United States due to the war. A lot of the the claims, the asylum claims of these over 300,000 people were denied. So there was a big movement of uh, immigrant advocates, including the American Baptist Church and uh, others. Thanks to that work, George Bush uh, granted the first DPS for uh, the Salvadorian community. In that time, Congress enacted the act that stated the rules and how a national of a country would qualify for TPS, that you needed to be a national from a country that it's uh, going through a war or a natural disaster that includes as well an epidemic, or that these con both conditions or one of those conditions does not allow the national to safely return to the country of origin. It also stated that 
TPS, Temporary Protected Status, does not grant you the opportunity to adjust status to become a legal permanent resident or to become a U.S. citizen, U.S. naturalized citizen. For the TPS that I am a beneficiary, that was granted back in 2001. We had two strong earthquakes in El Salvador in January and February 2001 and um, destroyed um, most of the infrastructure of, infrastructure of El Salvador and displaced over a million people and more than uh, 100,000 people died. I was currently living in, in the United States. I was residing in, in, in New York City. I met the criteria, just as uh, described, and I decided to apply because my family, is a, it's a very low-income family. And knowing the conditions of the country after uh, the devastation of both earthquakes, I decided the best thing that I can do is to stay here, apply, get a job, and send money. And that was the story of many other people that were here at the moment that migrated not just for the violence that pushed me outside of El Salvador the, the, uh, after being tired of being harassed on the streets, uh, many times being victims of robberies. Ever since, since 2001, I've been applying every time that we have been granted an extension of TPS, filling up the, all the, the, the forms and paying the associated fees to that which at the beginning, the first uh, TPS uh, in 2001, for my case, it was close to $175, the entire process, uh, the fee for the application for TPS and the biometrics. Now we are paying close to $500. One of the forms is $410 and the biometrics that they always have on file because your fingerprints are never going to change, but you always be charged $85. Uh, so we we are paying close to five hundred dollars for um, the same paperwork, and it's important to highlight that even the uh, issuing that card it doesn't cost anything to the government because we pay the cost associated for that uh, work permit and for the paperwork. You know the, the relief that they gave to Haiti was very limited. So two days after the. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Earthquake in Haiti, the January 12th earthquake in 2010. The Obama administration granted TPS as some sort of relief. One basic requirement is you had to be present in the U.S. on a day of the earthquake. So people that came in after the earthquake were not initially eligible for it. Just to understand this in a very like nuts and bolts way, earthquake happens. Obama administration says we're going to give temporary protected status to Haitians who are here in the United States as tourists or right 
Overstayed visas. Overstayed visas, what, what have you. The rationale for it was we're going to do the humane thing and not send them back to a country that's had this epic disaster. Right. In fact, folks that were waiting to be deported to Haiti, some of them were released because they put a hold on deportations to Haiti at that at that moment. What was the long-term plan, according to the Obama administration, for people that were granted TPS? It can be granted anywhere from six months to 18 months that you, you're allowed to have employment authorization and social security card. Therefore, you can work. In our case, it was 18 months, but it could be less because like, we saw last year they only extended it for six months for the Haitians until just recently they terminated and extended for the maximum of 18 months. Every time it's going to end, you don't know if it's going to be extended until just days before it ends. So you're living in an uncertainty. So we, a lot of us advocated for reinstatement of TPS. In 2011, they reinstated it where they included people that were there until one year after the, the date of the earthquake. And every time it was um, extended, we didn't know if it was going to be extended. We didn't know how, for how long it was going to be. And that's uh, the case for the Salvadorian community. We are close to 200,000. And then if you put together over 300,000 TPS recipients from Haiti, from Nicaragua, Honduras, and, and all other African countries in Nepal. It's a lot of money that we contribute in order to uh, receive that documentation, that permanent, that temporary protected status in our employment authorization. Ninaj, what's what's happening right now under uh, uh, Trump that, that is of uh, greatest concern to you regarding people with temporary protected status? So he's been terminating temporary protected status as the date comes up. Last year, in the case of the Haitians, they had extended it for six months instead of the normal 18 months. And they sent down John Kelly to Haiti for a few hours to see the conditions and decide whether or not it was okay. And he decided that Haiti was fine and it was okay to send 60,000 Haitians back. So they just decided on November 20th or 21st that they would terminate TPS for Haitians. They just took the same decision for El Salvador and some of the other countries as well. Yanira, what does that mean for you personally, given that you are here on TPS status? The first thing that came to mind is my family, because I know how much uh, the contributions, the economic contributions are uh, means for them. It's not just uh, for uh, uh, my elder parents, both retire, one is 93, the other 73. And the money that they are receiving after many years of working in El Salvador, it doesn't even give them the basics to survive. One of my siblings was a direct victim of harassment by guns, and he hasn't been able to find a job for over five years. I've been supporting him as well, and he's a father of three teenagers. So basically, I am not just providing for my parents, my sibling, but also my niece and, and nephews, for them to have the opportunity to finish school, to have food. And, and, and for me, the cancellation, the termination of TPS, it's not just an economic impact for my family, but also uh, knowing that El Salvador has the highest rate of uh, violence in the hemisphere is not an option for me to say that the program is going to be canceled and just go back. So once you received TPS, you then were legally allowed to work in the United States, correct? That's correct. And you were paying taxes in the United States. I am paying taxes. There is a billion contributions to the Social Security. That's a money that mostly benefit uh, U.S. citizen. 
Ninaj, what do you think is a just resolution to this situation? I think whether it's Haitians or anyone else from any country that has TPS, these are people that have lived here for many years, in some cases over 20 years. Under the Trump administration, everything, the whole process has been delayed for people to get their employment authorization. We have people that applied from the last six months that still didn't get their employment authorization. That would be finishing today. That would have been ending today. It paid the $495 that Yanira talked about, and they still hadn't received their employment authorized. So you're interrupting their employment, um, their driver's license. You have this, you get your driver's license for five years or 10 years, depending on what state you are. But if you have TPS, it actually has a date on your driver's license of when your TPS ends. So if you were Haitian, then it said today, January 22nd. So you were, weren't, you wouldn't have been allowed to drive past that date. But so it just immediately, it immediately ends. Yeah. And you have to wait for everything to be processed, which is being processed much slower now under the Trump administration. Yaneda, how do you think that this should be resolved? What do you think should happen with people that are here with temporary protective status? It's in the hands of Congress. Uh, the president said that the, the Secretary of Homeland Security as well agrees on that, that only Congress has a solution to adjust the status of the over 300,000 TPS recipients. In the history of TPS, since the first TPS back in the early 90s, we had never had this many um, bills in the House and in the Senate. We just have five bills in the House asking for adjustment of status for TPS recipients and one in the Senate. And that's the result of the amazing work of hundreds of activists, organizations, and TPS recipients across the country. And also, we must value that there are elected officials listening to to these requests, but also aware that we have a very difficult political environment. Uh, We will continue to reach out to elected officials in both chambers, the House and Senate, and try to find a solution. The only way to fix this is adjustment of status for uh, legal permanent residency. What happens going forward for organizers or for ordinary people? How do people get involved or make a meaningful contribution to trying to end the kind of xenophobic deportation policies? Well, as Yanira just um, mentioned, there are about five pieces of legislation that are in place that just as of October, really, just in the past few months, and, and we didn't know we were going to have this because everyone was only focused on DACA. So this is just for TPS. And that's a result of organizers from all over the country coming together because before we were in the shadows, TPS was in the shadows of DACA because we were individual countries with TPS for different reasons and for uh, that were ending on different dates. And so everything was looking at, looked at individual. But when we joined our forces together, many of us are part of this National TPS Alliance, that's when our forces became stronger because instead of saying 50,000 Haitians here, this many fits 50, 60,000 Hondurans here, 200,000, and then there were even smaller numbers in the African countries, we all came together as a fourth of 400,000 people. We've been able to make our voices heard. Most of the folks and the leaders in these organizations and TPS committees all over the countries are TPS holders. And so we go, we gather to Washington. We've been going every month, making our voices heard, telling our stories to the legislators directly from the mouths of the TPS holders, saying, you you will be separating my family. So I think the best thing to do is to to support some of these specific groups. Yanira, I'm wondering what your message is to people in this country, in the United States, 
why should they care about your plight or the plight of other people that are in this temporary protected situation and may very well be deported? Well, we are your neighbors. We are your co-workers. We have uh, deep roots, and we are part of the, the, the fiber of the, the United States. And um, we have been contributing for many, many years. And it's part also of the core values of the United States of welcoming uh, people fleeing from violence. It's part of the values and the history of the United States, welcoming those looking for a better opportunity. The, the, the difference that made that it welcomed many families fleeing from uh, dire situations from Europe. I just want to say, people that are angry about these racist remarks that are being made by the president of the United States, one way they can help is when they express themselves about this anger, remember what the roots of the, these remarks were. This is when he was talking about the, the, the population with TPS. These are populations with TPS, Salvadorians, Africans, Haitians. That's what he was referring to. Support our um, effort to get permanent residency for people that have TPS in expressing your your anti-racism. Ninaj Raul uh, is the director at Haitian Women for Haitian Refugees. Uh, Yanira Arias is the national campaigns manager at Alianza Americas. Thank you both for joining us on Intercepted. Thank you. Thank you very much. The rapid deportations of two high-profile immigrant community leaders from the New Sanctuary Coalition of New York City has sent shockwaves across the immigrant rights community. And now a new report from The Intercept details the unprecedented surveillance and attempted warrantless searches and stakeouts of New York churches and the homes of activist leaders Jean Montreville and Ravi Ragbir by ICE agents. New York's Mayor Bill de Blasio has vowed that his is a sanctuary city But The Intercept article lays out how the NYPD assisted ICE agents in their attempt to deport Ragbir. Jean Montreval was deported to Haiti last week after being snatched by federal agents as he walked down a street near his home. This raised the stakes for Ragbir, who feared that ICE agents may try to take him, even though he is in the midst of an appeals process. Ragbir's case is a complex one. He's a legal permanent resident in the U.S. He has a green card. But a decade ago, he was convicted of a nonviolent crime involving fraud and served time in prison. In the years since, he's become a public figure in the immigrant rights movement. And with Trump's radical commitment to deportations, especially of people with criminal records, Rogbeer has found himself in the crosshairs of the Department of Homeland Security and ICE. Ragbir is the executive director of the New Sanctuary Coalition, which is an interfaith network devoted to resisting detention and deportation of immigrants in New York. He's now scheduled to be deported to Trinidad and Tobago after living as a legal permanent resident in the U.S. for 20 years. Jean Montreval, who was deported last week, had lived in the U.S. for 30 years. To talk about all of these events, we're joined by journalist Nick Pinto. He wrote this report for The Intercept. Nick, welcome to Intercepted. Thanks for having me. So Ravi goes for this uh, hearing last March, March of 2017, a few months into Trump's presidency. A big crowd of people show up. What happens then in his uh, check-in with ICE? Sure. So so in that instance, he did walk out again, a free man, but they shortened the leash on him. They said, you need to check in at a shorter interval than you've, you've been checking in. So he was next due to check in with ICE January 11th this year. And I think 
talking to him and to his legal team in the lead up to that, I think they had been feeling fairly secure that whatever else might happen, he was not going to be taken into custody that day. And I think that confidence first began to be rattled a week beforehand when another immigrant who also was had sort of a leadership, a high-profile leadership position in New York's New Sanctuary Coalition, a Haitian guy named Gene Montreville, was picked up by ICE officers. He, he was coming home from work, going home to his place in Queens, and there were a bunch of ICE officers outside his door who picked him up. He was scheduled for a check-in in March. Um, he hadn't given ICE any cause to expect that he wouldn't show up there. He has a family, runs a business. He was hardly a flight risk. And yet he was picked up at his home and moved very quickly to a detention center in Florida and from there deported to Haiti. And so that was the first alarming thing that sort of made Rugbeer and his team wonder if something had changed in the rules. And the second thing was that that same day that Montreville was picked up, Rugbeer's legal team was meeting in Judson Memorial Church in the village to sort of plan for his upcoming hearing. And a number of the people who were coming in and out of the building were noticed some suspicious cars outside the building. They had dark tinted windows, distinctive unusual antennae. They had unremarkable New York state plates. But following the thing with Montreville, they wondered what's going on with these cars. And, and at a certain point, some of them decided to go out and sort of actively check in with these guys. And one woman rolled down her window and said, no, I'm not with ICE, but I'm not going to tell you why I'm here either. Another car that they sort of wrapped on the window of rolled down his window. And when he did, one of the people I spoke to looked into the footwell on the passenger side of his car and saw a DHS license plate, which certainly led him to conclude that this was a, a nice car. So this starts to get them quite rattled, the feeling that they might be under some sort of surveillance. They begin to wonder, well, if Montreville was picked up at his house and there are cars here outside the church, what's going on outside of Ravi Ragbir's home in, in downtown Brooklyn? And so they send some people out to his home to look at what's going on on that block. And those people tell me that they saw several more cars, also with unusually dark tinted windows, also with these strange antennae, also idling. Now, I should say, I asked ICE whether they were engaged in surveillance of Rugbeer's home, of Judson, of any other churches, and they declined to answer that question. They did, however, tell clergy associated with the New Sanctuary Movement who'd come in to talk with them that they were not involved. So while they haven't denied that to The Intercept, they did deny it in a private conversation with clergy. But also when you describe that meeting that clergy had with Scott Mikowski, mm -hmm. ICE's deputy field office director for New York, this ICE official seemed to already know why they were coming in there to talk to him and actually drew a connection between the, the two cases you're referring to. Right. The clergy had gone in intending only to talk about Montreville's case, but they say that very quickly Mikowski himself drew the connection and said, look, these are the two highest profile cases we're dealing with right now. And what you have to understand is that our hands here in the field office are tied. These people are eligible for deportation, and we're going to make determinations based on what we have to do. We're not going to keep kicking this can down the road. We're going to make a determination one way or the other on it now. So then what happened? The day for the check-in came, and Rugbeer went in with some family members and his lawyers. And first, they met in the cafeteria on the sixth floor of the Federal Center, and I, I was in there with them. Meanwhile, there was a, a substantial crowd outside, and 
the appointed hour came and he, uh, he'd been asked not to check in in the usual place where ICE usually handles scheduled check-ins, but rather to check in at Mikowski's personal office. And at the time, I think they didn't really know what to make of that. They thought maybe ICE was sensitive about the possibility because this was a high-profile case of, of creating uh, some disorder and they wanted to contain that. But as soon as he sat down, it became clear that they intended to take him in. He was informed that, that as of that moment, he, he was in custody. For whatever reason, he briefly fainted. I, I think he hadn't eaten a whole lot going into this meeting. I think he was anxious. He, he recovered in, in short order. But nonetheless, he left the building in an ambulance, handcuffed in an ambulance. And his supporters outside had reluctantly planned for the possibility that he might not be coming out. As the ambulance was leaving the building, there was a rush to physically block the ambulance. There was a sense that they were taking this high-profile symbol of the movement away, and they were trying to deport him. And there was just a spontaneous, immediate movement to to people were hurling their bodies in front of in front of this ambulance. How were they moving the people that had hurled themselves in front of the ambulance out of the way? With some fairly unrestrained laying on of hands, both DHS law enforcement and members of the NYPD's strategic response group. That's interesting because New York is a sanctuary city, according to Mayor Bill de Blasio. But what you're saying is NYPD did facilitate the removal of Rogbeer in this ambulance by assisting in moving demonstrators or his supporters out of the way. They assisted in that way. And they also assisted in that when the ambulance ultimately shook free of these supporters, the strategic response group provided a, a police escort for the vehicles transporting Ragbeer first to one hospital, then to another, then to a temporary detention, and then escorted them all the way to the city border at the mouth of the Holland Tunnel. So in that sense, they certainly did assist in you know the early stages of, of the deportation of, of Rugbeer. Now, I asked both the police and City Hall about this, and their position is, we don't do this ordinarily. We are not ordinarily in the business of, of providing ICE with escorts for people detained for deportation. We got involved because... There was disorder in the streets, and it's our job to prevent disorder. And we continued to provide this escort because there had been disorder earlier, and we wanted to be able to assist if, if there was any more. Eighteen people were arrested, including several clergy members and uh, a pair of city council members. Yeah, ultimately, they take him to Newark Airport, which is in New Jersey, and then fly him to Florida. That's right. Things do not usually move this quickly for someone taken into custody in, in New York City. Um from the moment that they saw which way things were going, Rugby's lawyers had taken steps to file for a habeas writ in the Southern District to prevent him from being deported or, or even taken from the New York area. And indeed, the court did order that he not be taken from the New York area. ICE says that it didn't get that information until he was already in transit. Interesting. So courts in New York order this. He's in Florida uh, anyway, regardless right. of what whether they knew or didn't know. Um and then he gets returned at some point to right. It took a, New York. it took it took a couple more hearings and and some some argument back and forth as to whether ICE was obligated to bring him back to New York. As I understand it, what the judge strongly suggested that ICE might want to consider bringing him back, and without saying that they were bound to do so, the next day ICE said that they had decided to bring him back. So he is returned to New York, and what is the current status of uh, Ravi Ragbir's case? 
He's being held in detention in Orange County in the Hudson Valley, Orange County in, in New York State. So he has a couple of things pending. This is also important, is that there are a number of open proceedings which could have a real effect on his deportability. So, so his lawyers are making the point that if indeed one of these motions is basically asking the federal court in New Jersey that convicted him initially of wire fraud to reconsider it, its decision in that case. If they did that, the underlying cause for his deportability would vanish. And that is open. That petition has not been resolved. And ICE is attempting to deport him, even though conceivably they, they could deport him and the next day he could be back to being a, a legal permanent resident. Is the argument that his lawyers have been making basically that this was not a violent crime, he did his time for it, he's an upstanding member of our society and that he shouldn't be uh, have his green card so stripped? I think, I think there, are, there are, it's confusing because there are many levels of argument here. There are some strict legal arguments that his initial convict, there were some actual problems with his legal conviction, with the counsel he got and, and with how that unfolded. The hypocrisy also of, uh, you know, look who went to jail for this massive fraud against so many homeowners and others in this country. And it's like, they this is the guy they, they pin it on? Right. There are technical legal arguments for why his conviction was, was inappropriate. But then, you know, I think there are also, his lawyers certainly make the case that this is someone who has paid his debt to society, who has family here, who has deep roots here, who hasn't lived in Trinidad for more than a quarter of a century. And then, I, you know, I think that there's a, an even higher level of, of argument that comes from many of his supporters in the New Sanctuary Movement, which is that no one is illegal and that the violence of, of deportation and banishment is never appropriate. Now, as you've been investigating this, would you say that you've started to see what appears in its early stages to be a pattern of law enforcement showing up in places where new sanctuary movement is, or is it an isolated case or two? Certainly people inside the movement are starting to see enough data points that they think something is happening. So it's it's not just what, what we've already talked about outside Rogbeer's home and Judson Church. Other churches in the New York area that have congregations that have a lot of undocumented immigrants or just provide services to undocumented immigrants say that they, in recent months, have been seeing ICE agents in some cases come into the church, in other cases sort of lurk outside and try to interview people as they're, as they're coming in and out of worship services in a way that they had not seen before. And ICE's spokesperson pointed me to their public policy on, on how they handle places of worship, which is we generally don't go into places of worship, but we totally reserve the right to if we think it's necessary. The pastors that I spoke to are alarmed and outraged because they see the effect that that is having on the people that they serve. That is creating an enormous amount of fear, and it's making people wonder, can I, can I go to church this evening? In some sectors of the same movement that you're describing, Obama was called the uh, the deporter in chief, and certainly did deport you know record numbers of uh, people. Are you hearing from the sources that you talk to within this broader movement or others in the immigrant rights community? Is this really new under Trump? Or because because I've had this sense for years. All sorts of immigrants are facing targeting and threats, if not actual deportation, under both Democrats and Republicans. That's definitely true. Is there something different happening under Trump beyond the horrid, racist, xenophobic, anti-immigrant rhetoric? It's been a little early to say, but I think, yes, we can say a number of things are different. One is that the prioritization has been thrown by the wayside, and now they can come for anybody. 
And as time goes on and, you know, we start to be able to look at numbers in a, in a more coherent way, I think this administration might be on track to be deporting more people than, than Obama did. Well, and, and one of the, um, the lawyers that you interviewed uh, referring to Montreville's deportation said it's absolutely new for ICE to be deporting people who still have open appeals. Right. And to the extent, and, and again, ICE won't comment on this question, but to the extent that they are targeting people for deportation, not because of anything unique in their status, but because they are vocal, because they are political, because they are talking about what's happening here, that starts to look like using the mechanisms of deportation to achieve political ends, which you know could make someone anxious. When you talk with uh, people that are working on this issue day in, day out, what's the sense that you get of the strategy right now on how to combat this moment that we're in, not just about these specific issues, but in general, the xenophobia and anti-immigrant sentiment and the fact that Trump is, as of now, still the president? For folks in the new sanctuary movement, you know, the, the heart of their work has to do with really bearing witness, right? So when people go in to these check-ins or these legal proceedings alone, often without lawyers, New Sanctuary sends people in to be with them, friendly faces to just escort them in so that they know they're not alone and so that the officials handling their cases know that they're not alone. And they pray outside of ICE detention centers. They pray outside of uh, Federal Plaza. And so an enormous amount of what they do is just making these invisible processes that cause so much individual harm to, to the people who are subjected to them, making them visible. And I think their feeling is that you just have to keep doing that, that so much of what's happening right now is possible only because what it actually looks like at the granular level when it happens to a mother, when it happens to a kid, uh, when it happens to, to someone with a family, that we only allow that to happen because we don't actually see how incredibly violent it is. I can't imagine the horror of, particularly if you have small children or you're in a, a, a medical program here, you're elderly and you're receiving care and you have a support community of walking into a place with no legal representation, knowing that that may be it for you, that you're going to be deported. Um, and uh, Nick Pinto, thank you so much for your reporting and for this expose. We'll link to it on our podcast website. Of course, it's on theintercept.com. Nick Pinto, thanks for being with us on Intercepted. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Nick Pinto is an independent journalist, and his article on this case can be found at theintercept.com. To end today's show, we're going to talk to the musical artist Sheon Kuti. He's from Nigeria, a country also targeted in Trump's racist rants. Last month, according to The New York Times, Trump said that Nigerians in the U.S. would never, quote, go back to their huts, close quote, if they came to the United States. Sheon Kuti is the youngest son of the legendary Nigerian musician, activist, revolutionary Fela Kuti. Fela was one of the most important musical performers of modern times. He lived his life under various dictatorships in Nigeria, and he bravely chronicled their crimes in poetic lyrics backed up by massive orchestras. Fela was a genre of music unto himself, and he pioneered the musical ideology of Afrobeat. Fela was regularly surveilled by the military juntas in Nigeria, and he and his family and bandmates and community were subjected to raids and beatings. Fela himself spent time in prison. He died in 1997, but his revolutionary spirit lives on. 
And for people who really know the music of Fela Kuti, his influence can be heard across the globe in the music of artists, some of whom may not even know his name. Some of Fela's children have also carried on the tradition and Afrobeat style. His youngest son, Sheun, is himself a revolutionary and has taken over as the band leader for the Egypt 80. In fact, when Sheun was a small child, starting at age nine, he used to open for his father and he would be backed up by the Egypt 80. Sheun followed in his father's footsteps, and when Fela died, Sheun became the frontman for the Egypt 80 at the age of 14. Sheun Kuti's forthcoming album, Black Times, will be released in March. His music, like his father's, is militant and made for people of struggle. Shayun Kuti joins me now from Lagos in his native Nigeria. Shayun, welcome to Intercepted. Yeah, thanks for having me on the show. So I, I want to begin just by getting your uh, response to the U.S. President Donald Trump calling Haiti and El Salvador and the entire continent of Africa a shithole. I think the problem the, the Western media has with Donald Trump is that he's unmasking the system. You know, he's unveiling the system for what it really is. And they don't like that because the Western system of global white domination depends a lot on plausible deniability. And Trump, in his ignorance, is erasing that. The fact that Trump says Africa is a shithole country is no different than it's nothing because words don't hurt me. You know, I've been, I'm too tough for words to prick. Well, I was surprised that there was a, the, the whole liberal media is still silent about the atrocities that Obama committed in Libya and in Syria and in El Salvador and in all these same countries. Everybody is so pissed off about some words being said about Obama treated Africa like a shithole. Bush treated Africa like a shithole, you know. So just because Donald Trump articulates it doesn't mean I need to see something new. There's nothing new to see. In fact, I think that is a toning down of the things we've experienced. If I'm just going to experience bad words from Trump, I prefer that to the actuality of being a shithole that past Western governments have made Africa to realize that it is, you know. So I don't think this is anything anybody should be losing their mind over. Don't bring that shit to me. Don't bring bullshit to Africa. Don't 
The new album that's coming out in March has very revolutionary strands that run through it, where you're invoking the name of various liberation fighters and uh, freedom fighters. Uh, and it feels in a way like this album is aimed at a lot of young people globally. Well, for me, it's not only young people. I think it's directed at the poor and working class people of the world. Listen to any head of state, any big time leader in this world, use the word poor people. They don't say poor people anymore. They are completely erased out because nobody lobbies for them. There's no representation whatsoever for the poor. You know, so for me, I think this is a message for humanity, not only for young people to rise up, for humanity to stand on the side of humanity. Like this whole Trump brouhaha, Trump said this, Trump said that. It's just salty liberals. This is the way elites behave. They hate to lose anything. When the liberals lose, they turn the leadership turns salty, the elites turn salty in the group, they start to promote some kind of division, you know, and then everybody begins to repeat their narrative. And this is what is really destroying the world. The fact that everybody regurgitates the narrative of the elites, you know, as if they care about the people, as if they care about the earth, as if they care about our social constructs. They only care about the dollar. I mean, last year, the elites took 85% of the money that was generated in this world. 1% of the population of this world took 85% of the money we generated last year. And it's only going to rise every other year. And that is the real outrage in the world. And that is what causes so much pain. And that is what I want people to see. I want my message not only to be as something that uh, speaks to young people, but all people, so that we begin to speak with our own narrative. We begin to say our own things because nobody else is saying it for us. But we need to know. So when we close the eyes to dream, so we not close the eyes to blind. We need to know. Of Africa, they born with children every time. So we know fit. Blind to the people who suffer. Blind to the pain. Blind to the exploitation of my brothers and sisters for gold and silver. Blind to the killing of my people for foreign gods and for the corporate gods. We must dream for the victims of aggression. We must dream for the dying children. We must dream for the victims of oppression. The era when various African nations achieved independence is now, you know, many decades removed. And it seems as though there's a sort of recolonization of African countries that is occurring uh, through a combination of Western white powers. And the, recolon- the recolonization started immediately after the independence. But, you know, the Western media hailed the coup plotters as strong arm leadership, the kind of leaders Africa needed. You know, military dictatorships were entrenched and strengthened by Western governments in Africa. The ideology that gave Africa its independence has long been betrayed. In my country today, Buhari is an 80-year-old general who was in this same military that destroyed our original dream in Africa. Because you see, the African military is an occupying force. The African military in every country is not an army of the people. You have to understand, all of them are conscripted by the colonial masters, trained to protect Western interests. And they are still an occupying force in our country still today. You know, the motherland is not allowed to raise its own leaders. And, you know, when people tell me about how little progress Africa has made since independence, I'm like, because Africa was not allowed to be independent. As soon as we were independent, coups were planned all over the continent. Nobody talks about that. There's no outrage about that. 
if we do not address the unseen hand, I don't think there's any way we can really get to the to the root of the problem or the solutions to it. In the case of Nigeria, you have the most populous country in Africa. You have incredible mineral and natural resources, uh, and yet Nigeria is constantly ruled by corrupt leaders who collaborate with, in particular, multinational oil corporations and American oil corporations that both literally kill Nigerians, but also kill the land. What about the role of oil companies in propping up these dictatorships in Nigeria? Nigeria was colonized by a company, people for United Africa Company, UAC. This is how the West operates. They put a company, you know. Now our problem is can we compete with those companies? Impossible. These companies are not companies, they are governments. You know, Shell is a government, Chevron is a government, Texaco is a government. So all companies are governments. They, are, they have unlimited political backing by their government, they are an arm of imperialism. ITT is the company that America used to destroy the whole of South America. So that's why I keep saying, until the people can stop their government from imperialism and sabotaging the growth of indigenous people all over the world, they cannot be changed. I mean, countries have been destroyed because of these people. Millions of people have been killed for these people to sell oil and take oil. Your father had his song ITT, which ITT, of course, as you were yeah. you were referring to, it's International Telephone and Telegraph, but your father changed it to International Thief Thief. As I'm yes. listening to your music and your commentary about contemporary institutions like the International Monetary Fund and Western powers, you can definitely see the legacy of your father manifesting in your work today. What would you like to see happen in your home country of Nigeria, given that Mohamedou Buhari, who is in power now, was also in power when your father was alive, and this is his uh, you know, next go-around. But what, what should happen in Nigeria, in your view? We need to organize and energize. You know, the indoctrination we have suffered as motherland people here in the continent, you know, the psychological damage that has happened over these periods that we've been under this subjugation and oppression from within and without, you know, because you have to understand so many elites here perpetuate the same evils against the motherland people. So I need us, we just need to energize and organize so we can embrace the reflection we see in the mirror. For me right now, I don't even see Africa as the only home of motherland people. You know, we're everywhere. All motherland people deserve the opportunities and the wealth of Africa. Africa should be used to better the life of motherland people, of its children that are scattered all over the world due to the history of slavery and whatever happened in the past. So for me, I need an Africa that is looking inward, you know, to take our own destiny in our hands. So this is what we get in Africa. You know, the narrative, you know, as soon as there's an opportunity, America backs it, the media backs it, everybody spins with it, they sell it to the people, packaged. And we forget the essence that is being betrayed by those things. Justice must not be betrayed. Can you talk about your views and feelings about Afrobeat and what it represents today? 
Afrobeat is a movement, you know, not just a musical movement, but a social, political movement to create an expression for the life of the people. The musical expression. Afrobeat is the musical expression of African existence. Hmm. What was the concept that your father was employing when he would form these large sort of orchestra-type ensembles where you had the dancers and so many musicians? What's the philosophy behind that kind of performance? It's simple. Because music is social. If you are blessed with the gift, you must empower as many people as you can. It's not a personal gift. Maybe, you know, you're almost a slave to this gift. You know, big band music. You bring many musicians into it and everybody can also make a living from that. And also, it gives you the big sound. <laughs> promise to give me peace and you give me war. You promise me justice and only jail the poor. You promise jobs and you close the factory. But there's always work in the penitentiary. Ah, yeah, yeah. What do you want people to take from the album that you're giving in March? I want the world to, uh, is, is solidarity, you know, I want people to take away solidarity. You know, all people in, involved in all the struggles all over the world for the progress of humanity, for the progress of uh, even our social development, you know that counters the narrative. How do you view your personal future? Are you going to uh, run for a political office? Are you going to remain a, a revolutionary artist? What's what's the future for, for you? I don't know, man. The future is right now, you know? Right now. That's it. You see, it's a future. Every second is the future, you know? So I guess I'm still a revolutionary artist. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. Seriously, you know, what can I say? Yeah. It is what it is. You know, I take one step at a time and I go where the ancestors lead me. Well, that's a great note to leave it on. Thank you very much for joining us uh, on uh, Intercepted. Thank you very much, man. Hey, don't come my people. Now you ready to And this is the title track off the forthcoming album, Black Times, from Shayan Kuti and Egypt 80. And that is Carlos Santana backing up the vocals there. This album is brilliant, political, and exhilarating. It drops in March. Make sure to pick it up. Let the black light shine on society and...
And that does it for this week's show. If you are not yet a sustaining member of Intercepted, log on to theintercept.com slash join. Sam Samzazar is our honorary producer, and we thank you for your generous support. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. We're distributed by Panoply. Our producer is Jack Desidoro, and our executive producer is Tal Malad. Laura Flynn is associate producer. Elise Swain is our assistant producer and graphic designer. Rick Kwan mixed the show. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. Happy birthday to my colleague Ali Garib. Until next week, I'm Jeremy Scahill. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.